I'll just try to start, and we'll hear what everybody else has to say. The subdivisions of this particular topic don't exactly go together to me. <laughs> Welcome to Story Geometry, the podcast on the craft and community of writing. I'm your host, Ben Hess, and that's award-winning musician, poet, teacher, and writer, Greg Gleisner. And the topics he's not sure go together... Well, here's Pam Houston to explain. I'm very eager to hear the three panelists, Mark Doty, Lydia Yuknovich, and Greg Glazner, speak on the subject of spirit, sex, beauty, death, in parentheses, and the ineffable, and how the mind makes language of them. That is quite a panel. As you may know, Pam is the author of the award-winning short story collection, Cowboys Are My Weakness, and the autobiographical novel, Contents May Have Shifted. She's also the co-founder of Writing My Writers, my partner in podcast crime. This is episode 11, Language for the Ineffable, and it's a companion to episode 5, our first live panel episode. Of course, to attend writing workshops and literary adventures, including panels like this one, visit writingxwriters.org for schedules, faculty bios, and all the details. You're about to hear a thought-provoking discussion on writing unexplainable topics and the language our mind creates to do so. In fact, Hart Crane, Emily Dickinson, Wallace Stevens, and Walt Whitman all make appearances, too. You'll then hear from Pulitzer Prize finalist Luis Alberto Urea for our election year literature segment, where I'm exploring past works inspired by, about, or shaped by policies, politics, or politicians of the era. And finally, you'll meet a guest from next month's episode 12. She's an aspiring writer who also happens to be cycling across the country. All of this is brought to you by our friends at independent audiobook publisher, Talking Book. So stay with us. Again, here's Greg Gleisner. The first thing to do there is to see what we're talking about. What are we talking about? There are probably about 50 different answers to that question in this room. So when I think about that question, I think about literal interconnectedness. So I would be very inclined, if I'm writing about this thing that I'm calling uh, interconnection, to take the edge off of it by mentioning a cheeseburger wrapper or, you know, a a jingle or some uh, bad remark I made in public. Do you see what I mean? For for some bizarre reason, to be a person to me seems to mean to be on about 17 different levels all at the same time. And the more of that we can suggest in language, the less hokey it sounds. So when I looked at that funky list on the piece of paper, they did all look connected to me. This is Lydia Yuknovich, whose most recent novel is The Haunting, Lyrical, The Small Backs of Children. Her memoir, or anti-memoir as she calls it, The Chronology of Water, was a finalist, Penn Center USA Creative Nonfiction Award, and named a Best Book of the Year by The Oregonian. From my point of view, when I thought carefully about each of those words, and I think sex and spirit and death and beauty and the ineffable... Mm-hmm. Was that, is that it? Yeah. Um, when I looked at them separately and as a group, what it brought me to was that they're each thresholds. And when we arrive at them as embodied creatures, we experience identity dissolution. 
You don't have to agree, but I like it when you agree. <laughs> but then when I was listening to Greg, I went off on this whole other tangent in my head when you were talking about how writing about the cheeseburger in addition to the cosmic awareness thing or the lofty writerly thing. I tapped into that quite keenly because a poet who I think does that beautifully and opened the door for a lot of us was Emily Dickinson. And I heard a fly buzz when I died is like a quintessentially one of those, right? Okay, I'll admit it. I had to look it up. Lydia's quoted the first line of Dickinson's famous, but not to me until now, four stanza poem. I heard a fly buzz. At the moment of dissolution, <laughs> she sees a fly and she writes a poem about it. And that is just as remains profound to me. I will never stop loving that poem or any of her poems. She's a god. <laughs> so that's one thing. A second thing is that when I myself move to try and write about those instances, I go to personal experience because it's a those are hard topics to capture without being a cliche idiot, right? So I go to personal experiences, and in my life, I for whatever reasons, I've been at the life death moment three different times. Um, so some of it's sad. I'm giving you the warning. I was there at the moment my father drowned and died, and I brought him back to life <laughs> with mouth to mouth. So I was at the moment of his death and the moment of his life, and they happened on top of each other. That's a big one. Yeah. And it's a big one, too, if you haven't, I can't assume any of you have read the chronology of water, but if you did read it, you'd hit, thank you, <laughs> you'd hit the scene where I, as the 23-year-old daughter, have to make the choice whether or not to save my abuser. And that moment is, you can't write about it. You can't bring language to it and succeed. It's one of those moments, right? Utter dissolution. And so going back and trying to recapture it brings you back to a dissolution moment. But that's a life-death moment where I understood profoundly that life and death were no longer opposites and they were not at two ends of a spectrum. And a second one I had, this is the sad one. That one's not sad to me, which is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I said it last night, I had a baby girl who died the day she was born. Also can't quite write about that. I'm not the only one in the room, by the way. This is not a story that's told often. But same thing, I had the birth-death moment in one moment, right? And I'm a writer and a painter, so I, that was big. And in there with the grief, and I went all the way down the grief road to psychosis. I was institutionalized not knowing what to do with that grief. So I went all the way down the grief road, and I had to choose to come back, because I, I kind of liked it there. Dissolution, ego dissolution, world dissolution, body dissolution, holding, I keep going like this because I know what it felt like to hold life and death. This, this topic, which seems impossible, is suddenly made possible by having genius colleagues. This is wonderful. This is Mark Doty, who won the 2008 National Book Award in Poetry for Fire to Fire, New and Selected Poems. 
And in addition to several books of poetry, he has written three memoirs, including a craft book, The Art of Description, World into Word. We approach these experiences with humility because we understand, as Greg is saying, that knowledge is partial always. Language is not comprehensive always. So that space of rupture of what is uncapturable may well be the space that spirit can occupy. Because we have that doubt, because we can't easily fill it, it's a breach into which other kinds of knowledge can enter. And so to go and try and write, none of us, no writer anywhere on earth is ever going to be able to perfectly capture the truth of any of those dissolution moments. So, you know, why try would be one question, right? Why try if it isn't possible? But what makes us human is that we can't help it. <laughs> What's beautiful about us is that the urge to try to bring language close to the threshold and, and maybe even dissolve in the process, it's worth it. That's why you do it. That's why you get that weird feeling in your stomach when you're getting close to it in a piece of writing and you want to run away. <laughs> and if you stay a writer, it's because you don't run away. It's because you keep going. So that you can, and then it isn't because you want to represent it and be the person who stands up and rises and says, I'm the one who represented it. We do it so that we remember how to recollect ourselves as a group too. We do it to tell storytelling, oldest form, poetics and storytelling and cave drawings, to recollect the group so the group isn't facing dissolution in the face of catastrophe or racial injustice or war or abuse. That's the reason to do it. So I'm here to recruit you. Okay, I'm in. <laughs> Beautiful. Just a brief pause to say you're listening to episode 11 of Story Geometry. This is a lightly edited panel discussion on language for the ineffable, brought to you by independent audiobook publisher Talking Book. I was able to sit down with Talking Book at the recent Association of Writers and Writing Programs, or AWP as it's called, down in Los Angeles. My name is Chris Hartram. I'm the senior editor for Talking Book. I do most of the acquisitions, edit the lit blog. I lived in Tokyo for seven years where I started TYO Mag, which was a literary and arts community magazine. Writing that you know you can get behind as a person and as a reader, that for me is like the litmus test of the kind of people I'd like to work with. I'm Ben, Story Geometry, Ben Machar, Chris Hartram, Talking Book, Dot Pub, go there. I think we should contribute a talking book audiobook to Gretchen, our cross-country cycling writer. What do you think? You'll hear from her later. But now, let's get back to our panel with Poetry National Book Award winner, Mark Doty. Those moments, hmm, they, they seem to me profoundly linked to, and I like very much how you said that, Lydia, that they are thresholds. And they are thresholds to that which cannot be spoken. They are the places where language fails. And therefore... The will, uh, in, in particular, somehow of the poet, I, I think, and, and I probably am meaning poetry here not specifically as a form, but more as a distillation of what, what we do. You know, that, that when we talk about the poetry of sport or, or, you know, the poetry of trees or whatever. That spirit is to fill the silence, to, to articulate it, to give voice to it. It's why you cannot look in the eyes of a seal and not want to supply some words. You know, there's a consciousness that's not yours. It's not got any language. What do you do? You've got to speak. Dogs. The wordless always calls to us. Babies. 
There's a beautiful phrase by Hart Crane, one of the great love poems of the 20th century. Mark's referring to American poet Hart Crane's Voyages, which is a six-section love cycle of poems published over multiple years, starting in 1923. He's, he's talking to the sailor that, that he was briefly enamored of, um, who broke his heart. And, and he says, hasten while they are true, sleep, death, desire, close round one instant in one floating flower. And that's a description of orgasm. Yes. Sleep, death, desire, close around one instant. In that moment, everything has dissolved that I know, and yet I'm not gone. So to be dissolved, to lose your sense of self, but to be present mm -hmm. is something that in some way is familiar to all of us and is absolutely resistant to words. And therefore, the only way that we can have a communicated, shared experience of that is through is through art, right? The most sophisticated use of words. The same medium that I use to order lunch is the one I'm using right now, and the one that I'm going to use when I write a poem, and the one that Walt Whitman is using, right? But to use it with the maximum degree of subtlety and sophistication, to point to what you cannot say, you know, poetry is very good at indicating what it can't name, at sort of drawing a circle around an open space so that you can see what's in it. I'll do a quickie and pass it, okay? First of all, as I was saying in the workshop I'm sharing with the wonderful writers I'm with this week, Whitman is my alternate Bible. It's on my bedstand. That's what he wanted. Yeah, I know. He told me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the Acker was my mentor, but Whitman's the reason I became a writer. And in it, even when I was young, I saw energy never dies, it just changes forms, which is what you're talking about partially. I saw it in his words. I saw that's what he was saying, that life and death are not what we've been told. Or, um, so I'm so glad you brought that up. And the other god in that era is Emily Dickinson to me. So Dickinson and Whitman really represent the start of something huge in America um, that we took really weird directions eventually. Um, but I also wanted to say, while I was listening to that amazing story, <laughs> the books I've written in the last five, eight years, eight years, about eight years, that came out of the trauma of losing a child. And I agree, you can't really say certain things around that event. But it is absolutely a concrete example of energy never dying and just changing forms. Because the girl in Small Backs of Children is the girl. What if she had lived? What if there is a girl spirit that I can follow as a character in fiction and poetics and reanimate in another form? And can I follow her? and love her and learn something from her story? Can she be brought back from the dead if the dead is not an end, not a telos? And even more, can I give you instances, or even if I fail at it, can I try to give you instances where you can feel her body and your body, this girl? That's a moment of what we're talking about. Um, and so I think we do take these instances of stuff you can't handle in life or stuff that's one of these thresholds and remake it. Mm -hmm. And another thing I wanted to say before I do my mic pass is, um, I, don't, I might be in the minority on this, I don't know because I haven't asked either one of them, but sometimes I think both language and the body are similar thresholds. Mm -hmm. 
sometimes I wonder if they shouldn't have been on the list. Hmm. That the language and the body are metaphors for experience, which I learned from Dickinson and Whitman. Mm -hmm. And so it's, I guess I'm just throwing it out there like an idea. What if they too are the kinds of thresholds we're talking about? Um, and, and I need to go think about that for a long time, but it's a question I have. It's a question I have. I want to say that in addition to these questions of threshold, which I'm really interested in personally, very interested in, um, they're in my writing a lot, there's also the other side of it in, in this way. So here's an example by a poet who, if he would have said he had a spiritual life at all, he would have said it was in the imagination. Um, sometimes he said he had, he did not believe in such a thing, and that would be Wallace Stevens. Stevens was an American modernist poet who's known for Sunday Morning, Snowman, and The Emperor of Ice Cream, among many others. Yeah, an amazing example. And, and I, I think like really great poems never want to have it just one way. For my literary recitation, I'm going to... <laughs> Recite the entirety of Toni Morrison's novel, Beloved. <laughs> now, I'm addicted to literature, so I just, I'm basking in bliss right now, just listening. I want to be a student again. <laughs> but I want to bring another element of the topic in, besides what we've talked about so far, and that is, and I could be dead wrong about this, so don't sue me, it's just an idea. <laughs> but in some ways, I think there's um, those categories and these spaces of writing are also uh, possibility spaces for agitation. And in particular, agitation against cultural norms and narratives. And art has always been a possibility space for speaking truth to power or bearing witness to what the culture is trying to smooth over and make you forget about. And it's just another angle on the question that these particular topics and thresholds and sublime, subliminal, liminal spaces are also a place with a politics to it. So, so we've been uh, talking about approaching these things sort of from a position of transcendence, you know? and it seems to me important that we talk about it from a position of desperation, too, because we come up against the things yeah. we're talking about. It's usually absolute wreckage you know, yeah. that's leading us towards the necessity Ravage. of confronting these things. Yeah. We're broken by them, we, we are harmed by our culture's response to sexuality, or we are grief-stricken and unable to put anything together and nobody wants to hear about it, you know? So that's the place right. where we have to find some way to speak in order not to be erased. Uh, I'll take that a little further on, on a personal level. I, we were having a conversation the other night about writing about grief, you know, and how do you talk about loss? And it occurred to me that I don't know how anybody lives through grief unless you make something. If, you, know, you need a container, and one of the things that, that writing provides for us is um, something that will hold that which is by nature uncontained. So, so we say we're falling apart, you know, or I can't hold it together, or I, my experience of new grief was that it was oceanic. I was just slapped by waves. I couldn't focus on anything. I, my attention was carried away by any current. And writing was the first thing that, that let me focus. Before I could read, I was beginning to write sentences about what I was experiencing because that felt like the lifeline. And so that work of making something that would 
sort of be the, the more stable, externalized version of my own consciousness, you know, was the thing that got me through. Without that, it couldn't have happened. And part of that work was then describing the process of making it. I mean, if you're writing nonfiction, one of the things that invariably you wind up doing is talking about how you become the person who can write this. You know, what are the forces that are making this book or the, whatever this thing is come into being? And so uh, it's a, a, a process of paying attention to one's own process of consciousness and awareness, and that is enormously helpful, right? It's kind of meditation, really. There's a thing I'd like to encourage you guys to ponder, write about, think about, um, challenge yourself to articulate, and that is if you go back to the little list of sex, death, that list. Um, give yourself writing challenges where you use one to articulate the other. You use sexuality to articulate death. Right? What else can you do? Yeah, right? You use death to articulate something banal. You use, <laughs> you know, not opposites or binaries exactly, but that you move through the one to find a new way to articulate the other. I think that's a great sort of writing prompt area to fuck around with and to open yourself up to the idea that the ways we've inherited for telling the story are tired. Mm -hmm. And that you really are writing in a new time. This really is a zeitgeist. And the demand of a zeitgeist is that you innovate. It's that you make the new forms and you find the new ways to say things, and you have relationships differently, and you let go of the old stories and risk the weirdness of telling it a fucked up way that might just be the way of your time. And in particular, I'm interested in death and sexuality in my own work. How do we retell, reinvent, innovate in those areas to liberate ourselves from the old narratives and understand new ways of being like in terms of physics. The demand is on you to tell the story differently, but we've been chicken shit for a long time. And we have you know, models of people telling the story differently. We can pluck them out and name them and recite them. But it's our job, too. It's your job to figure out how, what the new ways of telling it are going to be. Mm. And so the topic of the panel seems to me partly about you. How are you going to do it? You know, we're busting our asses trying on our end, and probably sometimes we succeed and sometimes we fail. But the question is bigger for you. How are you going to do it? How are you going to change your writing? How are you going to tell it differently? What does innovation mean for you? What is the largest risk you could take in your writing to enter the areas we've been talking about? What would it look like on the page? Right? I had to risk writing a novel that looks different on the pages than other novels. One of these things is not like the other. <laughs> and I had to risk that it could flop and no one would publish it and I'd be sitting alone in my underwear in my bathroom with it. But to me, the answer was the form has to change and move toward poetics even though I'm a novelist. So I did. But anyway, the question is more important for you. You see what I mean? The panel topic is about you and how you're going to make the changes in your own language. With this panel discussion in mind, I've been wondering, 
as I continue writing, what changes am I going to make in my own language? And where in the process do they occur? I mean, some changes come in the first draft, but with a novel-length thing, for better or for worse, close attention to language comes during revision, when I have the arc of story and shape of my character's journey. To me, added thought and nuance with language, with vocabulary, with word choices, icing on the completed novel cake. I mean, and yes, I can almost feel Greg and Lydia and Mark cringe. So it's late April now. How are you doing with election year 2016? I had the great fortune to sit down with Luis Alberto Urea in Boulder, Colorado. Luis is the best-selling author of 17 books, including The Devil's Highway and The Hummingbird's Daughter. Urea's recently released a book of short stories, The Water Museum, and a poetry collection, The Tijuana Book of the Dead. With the, the political climate that we're in, back on your experiences as a youth in Mexico and, and your family and being in San Diego, given what's happening politically, and you hear all the rhetoric that's shouted around. Where does it put you from a literary perspective? And and I'm wondering if there's any work or author that comes to mind that was really powerfully motivated politically, that, that, that yielded some great work. So many, but I, I would say, you know, one thing you need to understand about me is I was a working class kid, mm-hmm. self-taught rock and roll idiot. So my epiphanies were often ridiculous. Jim Morrison said, blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? I was self-taught. I I hammered together things by reading and listening and watching. Um, So, you know, at that age, Hunter Thompson blew my mind. I thought, how can you possibly get away with the things you're saying, you know, on the campaign trail and so forth? Yet his incendiary rage and enthusiasm made me really comprehend that this wasn't just politics. This wasn't just, oh, I don't like that guy, you know, or this guy. There were things, such such deep things at stake about our identity and our soul. And this election cycle is just insane for me to watch. I, you know, I, 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 I sometimes can't believe my eyes and ears at this right. point right. where we've gotten to. Hunter S. Thompson's novel, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, A Savage Journey to the Heart of the American Dream, is an autobiographical commentary on the failed 1960s counterculture movement. Maybe you've seen the Terry Gilliam film starring Johnny Depp. The novel also popularized gonzo journalism, which is Thompson's often seamless blend of fact and fiction. Fear and Loathing was published in two parts by Rolling Stone magazine in 1971, and then released by Random House as a book in 72, which, of course, is the presidential election year where Republican Richard Nixon trounced Democrat George McGovern. Hunter Thompson was not a fan of Nixon's and claimed the new president represented, quote, that dark, venal, and incurably violent side of the American character. What recommendations do you have for a future installment of election year lit? So far, we featured John Steinbeck, Juno Diaz, and now Hunter S. Thompson. Who's next? Please send me your ideas to hello at storygeometry.org. Coming up in Story Geometry, episode 12, you'll hear much more from Luis on his works across genres, insights from globe-hopping, award-winning science and nature writer Craig Childs, 
and also from Writing by Writers workshop participant Gretchen Howell, who arrived to the Chautauqua Lodge in Boulder on a loaded-down bike. I ask about the origins of her journey from California all the way to Colorado. It came about like just in a couple of days at the beginning of February. I had seen an ad for this riding workshop and I knew that I wanted to do another long bike ride. I was, I had quit one job and just didn't have any enthusiasm at all about getting another teaching job. So I decided I could ride my bike from California to riding by riders in uh, Boulder and then continue on to see more of my friends and visit visit different places I hadn't seen in the U.S. and hopefully go to some more riding workshops on the way. I'm a cyclist, but I have never done anything like this yet. Very inspiring. You can follow Gretchen's journey in real time on her Cycle Spinster blog. Just visit spinstera.wordpress.com. And we'll also have the link in this episode's show notes on storygeometry.org. Special thanks to Mark Doty, Greg Glazner, and Lydia Yuknovich for their thoughts on language around spirit, sex, beauty, death, and the ineffable. And Luis Alberto Urea for election year lit thoughts. I'm your host and editor at Ben Hess on Twitter and Instagram, and we're Story Geometry on Facebook and Twitter. Mark those calendars for future episodes arriving the last Monday of each month throughout 2016. Don't forget to visit today's sponsor, talkingbook.pub to create your very own audiobook. Our theme music is from Mark Hodgkin, and additional tracks are from writer Greg Glazner's band, The Responders. Please rate and review Story Geometry and iTunes, send feedback via storygeometry.org, and sign up for future Writing by Writers events and conferences at writingxwriters.org. More literary words of wisdom next time. Thanks for listening.